I was over in Singapore a few weeks ago. I was surprised at how widespread the awareness of the bakers was around the world. There wasn't anybody that I talked to from any country in the world. There were about 68 countries there. I didn't talk to all of them. But from uh, comments that were made, I simply assumed that from Bangladesh to Norway and Sri Lanka to Australia to Malawi, these were headlines around the world. And that just stunned me that uh, that was what was coming out of America around the world for these uh, countries to hear. And I'm sure you as well as I have been thinking much about the contemporary moral collapse of many of our sometimes most respected leaders. Let me just list off some things that have been uh, in our minds. Gary Hart's withdrawal, though I don't know what his faith is, from the presidential campaign after what appeared to be sexual involvement with another woman besides his wife. Uh, probably the most startling thing to me in that affair was a, a, a series of comments that I heard on the radio riding down 11th Street by one of our uh, United States congressmen, and I won't mention his name, commenting on how picky he thought it was that America was responding to Gary Hart's uh, tryst like they were. And you know what he said? I don't know if you heard this. He said, why do you think 30 years of Jesus Christ's life is not recorded? Because he was doing all the same things Gary Hart was doing. And the gospel writers are smart enough to leave it out. I could not believe one of our congressmen said that. I wanted to just jump up and down and, and just on historical ground say, you have no basis for that, for calling into question the moral character of the greatest man, let alone God, who ever lived. No historical warrant. But that goes right over the ears, right out of the United States Congress. And then, of course, the Baker debacle and... Uh, the divorce a couple of years ago of two of our major evangelical writers, one on leadership and one on relationships. Uh, the leadership article that uh, many of us used here some years ago about a pastor in bondage to lust and then most recently and probably the most tragic, uh, Gordon McDonald's resignation from InterVarsity after a long past um, affair. Now, one of the ways I could approach this tonight would be to talk about our response to this and what the morality of response should be. That is, the response of sinners in their role as leaders and the response of the Christian community. That's not tonight's message. There's something more urgent to me, and that is just to go to the scriptures and to look for a ways to uh, avoid this sin of adultery or sexual sin among leaders. And as I got ready tonight, I realized that what I have prepared is way too much for tonight. And so I'm going to extend this probably over two Sunday nights. And I'm going to talk tonight about pitfalls for Christian leaders 
in their sexual morality. And I'm going to talk uh, not next Sunday because that's communion Sunday evening, but probably the following one, depending on when I get my slides ready for the trip, uh, about protections, the corresponding steps to protect ourselves from these pitfalls that I'm going to look at uh, tonight. And as I show you these ten things, and we'll use the overhead, and I don't want to imply, please don't construe me as implying, since I have named some names here, that each of the people that I named uh, were or moved toward their sin through these particular steps. What I did in preparation was simply look at Scripture and all but one of these ten pitfalls comes from biblical leaders or words to biblical leaders which appeared to me to be things that if we weren't alert to, we would very likely move toward adultery or sexual sin of some kind in our leadership roles. And if you say, well, I'm not a leader, so this doesn't apply to me, I think you'll see that as we go along, um, most of them do apply to all of us who have ever had a sexual impulse in our lives. Now, I've just uh, numbered them here. And, and uh, I'll give a text with each one, and then we'll, we'll just say a word about it. And I think uh, it'll take us 35 or 40 minutes or so to move through this list of ten. And if you feel like you need to ask a question or make a comment along the way, feel free to get my attention, raising your hand. The first step toward adultery in leadership is falling in love with the present world. I get that from... 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, the reason that jumped off the page to me as I was pondering this is that Demas, in Colossians 4.14, is a trusted and loved fellow worker. It says, Luke the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. The same thing in Philemon, verse 24. But evidently for Demas, there in the big city of Rome, the world became so attractive that he departed and left his leadership role in the church and fell in love with the world. But more specifically, under this heading, what are the kinds of world that leaders in particular are tempted to fall in love with? And here we listen to Jesus. Acclaim and prestige. Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and love, love salutations in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feasts. A leader can begin to fall in love with standing in front of a group, with seeing his name put in certain lights. Over in Singapore, just about every one of these young third world leaders wanted their pictures taken with Leighton Ford. And I prayed for Leighton Ford. Oh, how that can be attractive. Riches and pleasure. As they go their way, this is the parable of the soils, third soil. As they go their way, they are choked 
by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Successful leadership generally is accompanied by an exposure to more and more alluring forces of prestige, and successful leadership generally makes a man or a woman more accessible, or turn it around, makes the pleasures of the world more accessible to them for reasons like travel. In Singapore, no wife, all by yourself, able to go downtown and do anything you want with nobody around who knows you. Travel. Higher salary generally comes with leadership, and with salary comes money. And Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. And wider circulation among people with more impulses, more acquaintances, more women. That's number one. Falling in love with the present world. Number two. A loss of horror at offending the majesty of God's holiness through sin. Let's read what Nathan uh, and said to David after his adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, anointed, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah. Notice, he does not say, don't you realize marriage is a holy and sacred ordinance? Don't you realize you have not loved Uriah? Don't you realize you have abused Bathsheba? He doesn't say that. He says, you hated God when you committed adultery. And I think there is a loss today among leaders of a horror at sin and at offending the majesty of God's holiness. What happens? What happens? There's a pressure to make people happy. The more people you must please, the more pressure to please people. Preaching on the holiness of God and the horror of sin doesn't tend to make people feel warm fuzzies unless they are very mature and spiritual. The result, there is a gradual turn away from it. You take the gospel of grace and you turn it into leniency. You take leniency and you begin to turn it into license. Then you begin to leave it believe it yourselves and then you begin to act on it. And grace will abound. So one little sin will not matter that much as the message changes away from the holiness and the majesty of God and the horror of sin, little sins, to that degree will the very message of the TV preacher or the pastor open the door 
into treating sex as a little thing. Contrast with that the words of the Lord Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully or to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Those are words that are simply ghastly. Gouge out your eye. Lop off your hand. Do anything so that with your mind you won't lust. But if you begin to treat sin as something, well, the grace of God has taken care of all that. And he is accepting and loving and the dimension of his holiness and his majesty and the horror of lust fades out of your preaching. Then, very soon, the little sins that lead to the larger sins will take over. Number three. Well, let me, let me just, I see another note I wrote down here. This means that often in life, innocent things must go. Now, let me raise a question here. We live in a work-a-day world where this may be virtually impossible. I don't think it's totally impossible. Lunch meetings between married men and single women in their business. How do you feel about that? If you were to stand up and say no to that, you would probably be laughed, just laughed out of your office and say, wait a minute, that's unworkable in this world where women are in the business world. Say that you can't have a lunch meeting with her down to Normandy. Don't do it. Now, that's this pastor's advice. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's no sin. It's just dangerous. I don't think... Wayne Grudem, who used to teach over at the college, used to say, I will not take a student or another faculty member home who's a woman. I won't give her a ride in my car. John Mars, who works for the conference, when he told me he was going on this six-week journey around the world, I said, Brother John, be vigilant. He said, John, I won't take a 95-year-old woman in my car. If you think that's silly, you live and are basically molded by the 20th century. Adulteries are not born overnight. They're born with eyeball to eyeball emerging warm feelings over lunch. Television, magazines, etc. Number three. A sense of immunity from accountability and authority. I was glad to hear Dr. Brushauber mention this the other day over at uh, the conference. Listen to this now. Third John 9. Somebody we never talk about, probably, Diotrephes. I have written something to the church, John says, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, or, or you could translate it, who loves preeminence, does not acknowledge my authority or does not receive me and my word. 
Now, there is a connection between this. To love preeminence begins to make you above authority. And Dr. Fuller, uh, Dr. Uh, Brushhaber pointed this out, that in many cases, as a man or a woman emerge into positions of great influence, so that great organizations are dependent upon their power, they become above accountability. They rise above it. They feel. And once that happens, great dangers are in the offing. You know, a lot of people talk about Billy Graham today and his remarkable... Um, integrity over the years. I was, I've been asking different people who know him better than I do, how, how has it happened? What, what is the key? And uh, one thing, two, two things, they're really one, have emerged in some key conversations. One person in Pasadena told me the story of Billy Graham's French uh, crusade. They said Billy Graham sat down for five months prior to this crusade with a man who was French through and through and American through and through. He found a person who had bridged the cultures and he said, I want you to meet with me regularly, I forget how often, and tell me what I must not and what I must do to fit there and to be a successful witness for Christ. And he put himself, as it were, under the counsel of this man. And the man said, if you play music during the invitation, they will reject you as manipulative. And they struck it. And another person told me that Billy Graham has surrounded himself with a half a dozen very wise and respected and mature counselors, and he listens to them. And he takes their counsel. And every single leader who rises in influence needs to do that. Number four. Succumbing to itching ears as a love for truth evaporates. Second Timothy 4, 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings and will turn away from listening to the truth. Now, just turn this around and ask what its implications are for these leaders, these teachers. Well, the implications are bend every effort to scratch where people itch and minimize your commitment to the truth. When a love for truth, and I mean whether you pay for that pack of gum, whether you keep that promise to be on time, whether you care for the truth or begin to fudge in the truth will make a great difference in whether you become the kind of person who begins to play to the crowds. 
He who is faithful in little things, Jesus said, will be faithful in much. And oh, how easy it is to begin to rise above the need to subordinate yourself to the demands of truth. For example, the temptation to begin to omit difficult doctrines from your teaching, especially on TV, oversimplifying moral and social and theological issues, gravitating toward the health, wealth, and prosperity teachings, dishonest procedures in evangelism. In Singapore, there was a lot of talk about integrity, and one of the men, I, forget, I think he was from Turkey, stood up and said that he was in a crusade with an American evangelist, and wasn't Billy Graham, who got very angry with his counselors one night when they didn't keep their eyes open and watch for hands to go up, when he had said, every eye is shut and every head is bowed. And when he heard this evangelist get angry at his counselors, he wrote him off. You see, integrity and faithfulness and honesty and truth in little things shows where your heart is. And if you're willing to manipulate people by fudging on truth, you will one day scratch a woman where she itches and justify it regardless of what truth demands. Sexual morality is related to truth. I really believe it is. There is a mentality of relativism that begins to be cultivated. Expediency begins to govern the mind. It weakens firm moral resolve. The audience needs to be massaged. Ears need to be itched into approval to gratify your lust for power and the pleasure that you get from approval, and soon the same procedure governs your sexual relations. Anything is okay if you satisfy an itch. Let me develop just another dimension of this. Immunity from criticism on this score is achieved in a remarkable way. Immunity from criticism on this score, namely by playing off warm relational orientation to cold uh, doctrinal orientation. So if I, as a cold doctrinal oriented person, come along and say to somebody that I think is in danger of muddying truth to such an extent that he'll be able to justify dishonesty or immorality, and I warn him, he will be able to rise above my criticism by saying, look, it's people that matter, not doctrine. It's relationships that matter, not your cold-hearted commitment to truth. And you can see, those who have eyes to see can see that this is a camouflage to justify an abandonment of truth in favor of a a uh, kind of confusing 
and uh, foggy morality that very easily allows one to commit sin. It's when it's used as a um, defense or as a, um, a parry and a rejection of a commitment to doctrinal purity and a focus on uh, dimensions of morality and truth that are indicting. I'm talking out of experience here that I have seen people justify divorce, justify fudging in economic morality by appealing, and I'm jumping ahead now to another point, not to clear, precise, lucid biblical teaching, but to vague slogans that seem to have a root in the Bible. Peace, justice, kingdom, mutuality, wholeness. And say, it is more whole. It is more loving. It is more peacemaking to do what I'm going to do when a specific text that I'm taking my stand on says, don't do it. And so the way they uh, protect themselves from my indictment is to say, Piper, legalism, cold. And I simply have to plead those who have spent time with me most who's right. So no, a good corrective, Gene, no relationships and everything that Peter said here is utterly essential. We won't stand in our integrity if we don't have a family of believers with whom we're related to closely. And when I talk about protections in a couple of weeks, we'll spend a lot of time I hope, trying to show that whole and healthy personal relations is a great protection against. But this, this, what I'm after here is just trying to show that uh, a, a failure to love the truth is often justified by putting lovers of truth in the category of legalists or uh, hard-hearted, cold um, doctrinally oriented, indifferent to people types. Here's another text on this issue of truth. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with pretended signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. I really do believe that the test of whether your relational orientation is a subterfuge or is godly, the test of that is whether you love the truth. Number five, a vanishing attention to Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Sounds relevant, doesn't it? For reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That's what the Bible's for. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every avoidance of adultery. And a thousand other good works. 
And therefore, I conclude that something's wrong in the relationship to Scripture. And as I look out over the kind of preaching that comes through the airs and the kind of preaching I hear other places, I say I detect a vanishing attention to Scripture. Let me explain what I mean. Leaders, it seems to me, begin to replace Scripture with storytelling and joke-telling. Or social analysis, or family discussions, or psychological diagnoses. All kinds of good things in themselves. And gradually, they begin to usurp the priority of the inspired Word of God. And there are all manner of homiletical justifications for this, which don't cut it in my book. The Bible begins to become a token reference. Exposition recedes into the background. Biblical, and here I'm, I'm ahead where I was before, biblical-sounding slogans begin to replace specific sentences from the Bible. For example, peace, justice, kingdom, mutuality, grace, acceptance, wholeness. You talk with people and they don't quote scripture. They give you slogans that sound scriptural. And it is a subterfuge so often to get out from under the specifics of Scripture, to get away from them. Moral generalities begin to replace grammatical detail, and soon the Bible, in all of its pointed specificity, is no longer the authority, but rather the ideas of man that are filling up the slogan. Now, what's the effect on sexuality here? Well, the lusts of the flesh can much more easily exploit a fuzzy moral generality than those lusts can exploit a firm, precise, specific biblical prohibition. Flee fornication. That's pretty specific. Avoid unwholesome and irresponsible relationships. Doesn't cut it in the back seat. Look, I, I spent hours in the car with Noel when we were engaged. One thing saved me. Free fornication. God hates it. Clear. Like a rock solid rapier over my neck. Because my parents taught me. Flee it, John. Flee it. Flee it. Not... Find a way to be loving in the car. Find a way to be peacemaking. Find a way to be whole. Moral generalities don't work in the back seat. There is a hermeneutic that leads to adultery. Let me say that again. There is a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting Scripture that leads to adultery. Loose and sloppy handling of biblical truth lead to loose and sloppy living. It is all over the place. Six, a growing disregard 
for the spiritual good of the leader's followers. A growing disregard for the good of the church, if you're a pastor, for the good of your listeners, if you're a radio preacher, or your watchers, if you're a TV preacher. 1 Kings 14, the Lord will smite Israel as a reed shaken in the water and root Israel out of this good land. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel to sin. Now, we don't have time to go into the context, but again and again in the book of Kings, this is the 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 evil. Of the sin of the kings. They made their people to sin. They made their people to sin. Now, just think about this for a moment. If you begin to feel a disregard for your people out there. They're, they're blokes. I'll send their money in. Just tell them a story. If you begin to feel a disregard for the people... The incentive of righteousness that is implied in this text will have no power in your life. And what's the incentive? You do your people a great benefit when you keep yourself pure. It was, uh, oh, who is a Scottish preacher? Um, McChain. McChain said, what my people need from me more than anything is my personal holiness. Why? Because when Jeroboam sins or Machain or Piper sins, the people are going to be destroyed. At least there's going to be more sin in the congregation than if it hadn't happened. Right after saying that the scribes loved salutations in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues, Jesus says, without even starting a new sentence, who devour widows' houses. Now, you see the connection here? Let me try to say it again. I'm referring back to this passage in Luke. And he says, beware of the Pharisees or the scribes who love the best seats in the synagogues who devour widows' houses. You see any connection there? Who love the best seats in the synagogues who devour widows' houses. The more a leader begins to fall in love with prestige, the less he's going to care about that widow watching his television program. And so you devour her house. And then he goes on and tells the story of the widow's coins. This is a remarkable sequence in Luke. Here's this widow throwing her last two cents into the uh, treasury. And that comes right after saying that those who love prestige devour widows' houses. That couldn't be more relevant for TV preachers than anything in the Bible. And, and maybe, maybe for us. Do, do we pressure the poorest to give the most? And devour their houses. Seven. A disregard for the biblical mystery of marriage. A 
man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, and I take it to mean Christ and the church. I think that by and large, Christians, married Christians today, don't think of their marriages biblically. Most of the input for interpreting the meaning of marriage comes from secular sources. How many Christians, husband and wife, think during the day, how, as a husband, can I be an emblem of Christ's relationship to the church by the way I treat my wife? And how many wives think during the day, how can I be an emblem of how the church ought to relate to Christ by the way I relate to my husband? Has the, Christ, has the centrality of Christ in the meaning of marriage gripped Christian married people? I think it's being disregarded far and wide. Now, what's the result? The horror of adultery doesn't appear. We don't feel the horror of adultery based on the mystery of marriage. Now, let me explain what I mean. What is the mystery of marriage? The mystery of marriage that was not revealed for many generations is that God created marriage to model for the world Christ and the church. Noel and I are intended by God in our marriage to be a public model of Christ and the church. Now, what does this mean for adultery? Let me put it in the strongest terms that I could think of. Adultery is like casting Jesus Christ in the lead role of an X-rated movie. Adultery is like casting Jesus Christ in the lead role of an X-rated movie. Now, I don't know if you see the, 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 the impact of that. What I mean is, I am an emblem in my relationship of Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church. If I turn away from my church, my beloved, and find another woman and go to bed with her, what I am doing is casting Jesus Christ symbolically in the lead role of an X-rated movie. Now, most of these movies do not go on the air. But when you're a leader, they go on the air. And they're shown in theaters all over the world. Look, here is Jesus Christ in bed with another woman. Now, if you think that is overkill, you are shaped by the 20th century and not by this text. This text says the meaning of marriage is Christ and the church. Therefore, adultery is putting Christ in bed with another woman. That's an X-rated movie. And when you're a leader, the movie goes to the theaters. And if that isn't horrible in your heart, then you've lost a great incentive for purity. And it has been lost in many leaders' understandings of their own marriage. These are a little bit shorter now. Number eight, compartmentalizing of the leader's life. 
What we're talking about, remember now, is steps towards sexual sin and the implication of how to avoid them. Compartmentalizing of the leader's life. 1 Timothy 3 says, Now an overseer should be above reproach, a husband of one wife. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, that's one compartment of life. How can he care for God's church? That's another part of life. So you see the implication of this? The implication is you can't compartmentalize your life. You can't say, oh, well, I can live like this at home. I can have this kind of relationship in my life, and it doesn't matter. I, I can still be a good elder in the church or a good deacon or a good trustee or at business. Take business. That's not here, but the implication would be the same. I can run my business the same way everybody else does, even though it seems to contradict a few biblical teachings, and still be a good trustee in the church. I was talking with one of the pastors here for uh, the annual meeting, and he said he has a man who's not a believer in his church. He's on the trustee board. And there are enough worldly people in the church that he can't do anything about it. And the man justifies it by saying, it's my contribution to society. I know how to handle money. And you, you, the rest of these people in this church don't. It's incredible how we can... Uh, compartmentalize our lives and say that what we are in one sphere doesn't have any bearing on what we are in another sphere. And it's a stepping stone, I think, to adultery because it is used to justify loose living in one area while you're tight in another because you've got them in two different uh, categories where two different uh, things apply. Nine, the sense of being above the necessity of suffering and self-denial. A leader begins to rise in influence. And look at this. Right after telling Timothy as a leader that he should entrust the truth to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, this is what he says. Take your share of suffering. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier on service gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. The, the uh, single-mindedness of the soldier, the discipline and rule-keeping of the athlete... And, you know, athletes do a lot of things that that seem to be superfluous in terms of discipline because of what they want to achieve. I think leaders are in the category of athletes more so than most of than all of us are. And we all are. And then the farmer who works hard. So diligence, discipline, single mindedness. But here's the thing I want to focus on. Take your share of suffering. Generally, with successful leadership comes the possibility of avoiding suffering. Let me give you some examples. There is usually more money. And with more money comes the possibility of avoiding inconvenience. You can pay to avoid it and getting more pleasures. More people ready to do you a favor the more prestige you have. 
more expectation to go first class. You can watch the clothes change on the man who rises in leadership. You can watch his clothes change. You can watch whether he goes first class on the plane or business class on the plane. There's kind of a rising expectation. Go first class. What hotel do you stay in when you're 30 going to a conference? And what hotel do you stay in when you're 50 speaking at the conference? And there's more freedom to delegate scrut work. And a mindset can emerge that begins to say, well, it's, it's fitting that I not suffer. I mean, I bear a great responsibility in this institution, and it's appropriate for my position and my prestige that I have these accoutrements. And the perks of power are a good testimony of the goodness of God in the life of his faithful servants. That is insidious theology. And it's very prevalent. Gradually, the leader begins to justify his exorbitance because he's doing the war effort such a great favor. And he's the rallying point. If anything happened to him, the cause would fall. He's so important in the church and the organization. He is above suffering and discipline. And if that's the mentality that gets a hold of a leader, then he's on his way to the Bahamas with another woman. One more. Giving in to self-pity under the pressure of loneliness, the pressures and loneliness of leadership. Now, I uh, have never committed adultery physically, but I have tried hard for this message tonight to put myself into the skin of one who has, or to imagine myself in a situation where I might uh, sin like that and try to figure out what goes through the head of a Christian leader. What goes through his head? And here's what I came up with, and I just suggested as a possibility, and one thing that I think can help us guard ourselves. Self-pity is a powerful and wicked force in the life of a leader. Here's the way I think a leader might begin to reason. Nobody else understands my pressure. But that woman I met in Cincinnati, and I had lunch together. She's a men she leads a ministry down there. For I'm just making all this up. She leads a ministry, and we had lunch together to talk about a ministry. The way she looked at me, my wife hasn't looked at me that way for a long time. She really listened to me. Nobody else understands my pressures. Nobody else seems to feel for me and my loneliness in this leadership role the way she does. If any of them knew what I was going through in this leadership role, they would understand why I need this kind of embrace. I need this kind of unconditional acceptance, which is a catchphrase today for don't lay any guilt on me. Don't lay any moral demands on me. I need this kind of unconditional acceptance. I have borne enough of the burden of being everybody's spiritual example. I'm tired of it. I can't take it anymore. And I don't care. 
if they don't approve. Now, that's my imagination. Putting myself in the position of a leader who just begins to get it up to here when he's away from home. Self-pity is a crippling power. And I close now by asking the question, what's the antidote for self-pity? And we're going to talk about ten other antidotes in a couple of weeks. Here's what Paul did. It's the last letter that he wrote. The great leader is abandoned. At my first defense, no one took my part. All deserted me. Now, this will stop there. That's the best candidate for self-pity in the New Testament. Everybody deserted me after all my faithful years of service. Here's what he does. May it not be charged against them that the Lord stood by me and gave me strength to proclaim the word fully. The Lord stood by me. I think at the bottom is the issue, is the Lord our treasure?